Please turn with me now in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. Our text for tonight is Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 through 21. Correction, 31. 16 through 31. The context is the sending of the 12 apostles on their mission to Israel. Jesus is sending them out to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom and to accompany that with the same signs that he did, healing the sick, raising the dead, cleansing the lepers, and casting out demons. Matthew chapter 10, beginning at verse 16. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father." but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we have heard this portion of your word read, and now we are preparing to hear it expounded and preached. We ask that you would be with both the speaker and the hearer alike, that you would use this portion of your word to draw our faith and our affections toward Christ, that we might be ready to be witnesses for him against all opposition. This we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The title of the sermon tonight is Preparing for Persecution. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here in this passage. He is preparing his disciples for persecution. Until recently, we have had tremendous religious freedom in this country. The Lord has given us the freedom to proclaim Christ, to plant churches, to worship the Lord without fear, 
And he has done that. He's given us great blessing over the past several hundred years. Interestingly, though, in historical perspective, that is something of an anomaly. It's not the way it usually is for God's people, whether we're thinking throughout history or even now throughout the globe. There are many parts of the world that do not have that degree of religious freedom, and believers in the Lord are persecuted, and they must meet for worship in private homes, in uh, places that are obscure, for fear of being persecuted and opposed, whether by the governing authorities in their country or just by the hostility of their fellow citizens. That anomaly that God, that God has given us of being free to worship and to proclaim the gospel in this country uh, is something that we should be thankful for, but at the same time, we should also be aware of the fact that it is not something that we can take for granted. And in fact, I personally think that things are beginning to change, and we're beginning to see uh, in our own country uh, the ways in which there is hostility to the gospel. Uh, there was a time when there was sort of this agreement that uh, Christians and non-Christians would simply tolerate one another and agree to disagree. And even though we might have different religious beliefs and worship in our own churches or not worship in any church at all, yet we were free to follow our conscience and not molest one another or be intolerant toward one another. But that tolerance seems to be changing. There seems to be an increasing degree of direct hostility to Christianity that being a Christian is no longer something that can be tolerated, but is rather deeply opposed as being dangerous to the world and to society. And so things are beginning to change. And I believe that this passage here in Matthew chapter 10 is helpful for us to prepare ourselves for that possibility of persecution. Perhaps it will not come in the form of direct state-sponsored persecution from the government, but there is hostility from the world around us. And so we need to prepare ourselves for that, to be prepared for possibly losing our jobs for our faith, because we're not willing to go along with the politically correct ideas of the world. And so we need to hear what the Lord has to say to us in this passage to help us to prepare for that. Now, just a little bit about the context I didn't read it, but the context is the first uh, section of Matthew 10, beginning in verse 1 through 15. Uh, in that section, Jesus, he calls the 12 apostles, and he gives them authority, and he sends them out to proclaim the gospel. But interestingly, he says in verse 5, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This particular mission that Jesus is sending the disciples on is very specific, and it contains specific instructions for this particular time, this immediate period of time prior to his death and resurrection, in which he is sending the disciples on a mission to Israel. He's saying, I don't even want you to go to the Gentiles, at least not yet. After his resurrection, he will send them to the Gentiles. We see that at the end of the Gospel of Matthew and the Great Commission, where he sends them to the whole world. But now in this particular mission, he's sending them to Israel. And he's giving them very specific instructions as they go. 
Um, for example, in verses 9 and following, he talks about how he doesn't want them to take any money with them. Uh, acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, meaning gold or silver or copper coins that you would put in your, in your belt. Basically, don't take any money with you. Don't bring any extra clothes or change of clothing. Uh, no bag for your journey uh, or two tunics or sandals or staff. Why does he make these very specific instructions uh, to the disciples? Well, the reason is so that they're going out empty-handed. They go out without any money, without any change of clothes, and therefore they are required, they're forced to rely upon the hospitality of the people of God. And that's a test for Israel. Those among the people of Israel who are receptive to the message, who are believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ as proclaimed by the apostles, they will welcome the apostles into their homes. Stay with us for a while while you continue your ministry here in this particular town. On the other hand, those who rejected Christ, who shut their doors against the apostles, they showed by that that they were not receiving the message of the gospel. I apologize. I was warned that this might happen, but I'm just going to plow forward. Hopefully you can hear me. So he's encouraging the disciples to go out empty-handed and thus to be forced to rely upon the hospitality of the people of Israel. Now, as I said, this is a very specific uh, uh, mission that is only for this particular time. These specific instructions about how they're to go without any money is only for this particular time. But in the process of giving these instructions to the disciples for this specific mission to Israel prior to the time when the mission is opened up to the Gentiles, Jesus also, in the midst of this instruction, he also looks ahead to the mission as it would be continued after his resurrection. And you can see that in some of the verses that we read. For example, in verse 17, he says, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. Now notice this phrase here, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Well, that's interesting, because back in verse 5, he said, Don't go to the Gentiles. But here in verse 18, he's already anticipating that at some point they will go to the Gentiles. So the point is, is that even though this passage, Matthew chapter 10, is very specific and very narrow and it's only for that particular time, it also does contain instructions that look beyond that time to the way in which the mission will be expanded after the resurrection to the nations. We can even see in verse 20 a reference to Pentecost. Verse 20 says, it's not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. So he's already looking ahead to, after his death and resurrection, the spirit will be poured out at Pentecost to empower the disciples so that they can continue their mission and proclaim the gospel. So the teaching of Jesus in this section, although it initially starts out as being limited to this specific mission to Israel, is not limited to that and does contain teaching that goes beyond that. It also contains durable instructions that apply to the mission of the apostles after the ascension of Christ. And so what is the main point that Jesus is trying to communicate in this particular portion of these instructions, the portion that we read? He's trying to prepare them for the possibility, in fact, the inevitability of persecution and opposition. 
He says we should not be surprised by persecution, but we should expect it. And so we need to prepare for it before it comes. And he says we need to be alert to the spiritual forces that are at work. He says in verse 16, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, he says. In other words, Jesus is saying, don't be naive. Don't assume that everyone is going to welcome you and just love you and think that you're the greatest. No, they're not. They are going to hate you. At least some will. Many will come to Christ, but there will be some who hate you. And don't take it personally when that happens because the world has an allergic reaction to Christ, not to you. It's not because your personality is obnoxious. It's because of Christ. That's the thing that the world hates. If the powers of darkness rejected Christ, and they used the Jewish leaders and the Roman officials to do that, don't be surprised if those in positions of authority reject and persecute you as well. Notice he says, be wise as serpents. I think that's interesting. Um, the idea of serpents being wise is a symbol for wisdom. Perhaps that comes from Genesis chapter 3, when it mentions the serpent was the craftiest of all the, the beasts in the, in the garden. But there's this idea of serpents being wise and having wisdom. And Jesus is saying, I want you to be wise as serpents. I want you to have spiritual discernment. I want you to recognize the spiritual battle and the, the stakes that are at play here and to get ready for opposition. To help the disciples prepare for this, Jesus makes three points. He says, first, consider persecution as an opportunity for witness. That's the main point in verses 18 to 20. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Notice that phrase. You will be dragged before the governors to bear witness. That is why this is going to happen. This is so contrary to our immediate response to persecution. When we are persecuted, when we receive opposition to the gospel, we feel sorry for ourselves and we get hurt, we feel hurt, we feel defensive, we want to respond and say, well, you don't understand, you know, we kind of get argumentative, we, we, we think about it in a personal way. And Jesus is saying, flip it on its head. Persecution is not an opportunity for you to feel sorry for yourself. Persecution is an opportunity, a divinely ordained opportunity for you to bear witness. He says in verse 19, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your Father speaking through you. I think Jesus here, as I mentioned, is looking ahead to the day of Pentecost. Remember when the spirit was poured out upon the early church in Acts chapter two. As a result of the outpouring of the spirit, the apostles fearlessly bore witness before the people of Israel. Remember what a contrast their ministry was uh, after Pentecost, contrasting that with what they were like before. In the time of their ministry before the resurrection of Jesus, they were anything but fearless. Peter denied the Lord three times. He was afraid that he might get arrested too. So he denied the Lord. The other disciples, they all fled when Jesus was arrested. But that all changed after the resurrection and the gift of the Spirit at Pentecost. These weak men were suddenly made strong and became fearless 
witnesses to Jesus Christ. Think of Acts chapter 4, when Peter and John, they were commanded by the Jewish Sanhedrin not to speak about Jesus in public, and yet they did it anyway. They healed a lame beggar at the gate of the temple, and Peter was filled with the Spirit, and what did he say? This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, referring to the leadership of Israel, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. The timid and fearful disciples became bold and fearless. And what made the difference? It was the gift of the Spirit, the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension into heaven from which he poured out the Spirit upon his church and upon the disciples. It completely transformed these men. It gave them a supernatural courage so that they were enabled to stand up and bear witness to Christ in spite of the raging opposition of the Jewish authorities and their threats to arrest them and to persecute them and throw them in jail and to possibly even have them put to death. In spite of all that opposition and all of that anger and raging opposition, they boldly proclaimed Christ. But here's the key. It was precisely the opposition and the persecution that provided them the opportunity to do that, to bear witness to the resurrection power of Christ. And that's what Jesus is saying here in our text. Get ready for persecution, but don't take it personally. Don't get bent out of shape and, oh, me, oh, my, why am I suffering? Rather, seize the opportunity to bear witness because Jesus Christ is ordaining this persecution precisely for that purpose, to show the power of Christ in you. The devil would love to get at Christ, but he cannot. Christ has ascended into heaven. And so the devil tries to get at the people of Christ, the followers of Christ who are still upon the earth. The world cannot see the resurrection of Christ. Well, maybe those who lived in the first century, some of them did. But the world today cannot see the resurrection power of Christ. But they can see the resurrection power of Christ at work in the transformed lives of his disciples. And they can see the reality that there is indeed a Savior. And he, his reality, the fact that he is alive today, that he is at the right hand of God, is manifested in the changed lives and the boldness of his people, of his followers. I love that famous saying of the early church father, Tertullian. He said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The martyrs shed their blood because of their faith in Christ. The Roman government had made worshiping Christ illegal, and even the very name of Christ, even being called a Christian, made you subject to legal penalties. And it may have seemed like a terrible thing that so many Christians were killed because of their faith. And yet God in his providence used that to bring many to know the Lord Jesus Christ when they saw that these men and women lived for Christ and that they had a heavenly hope 
that transcended this earthly world. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And so the church grew by leaps and bounds during those first several centuries because of the martyrs who bore witness to Christ. That's what a martyr is. The word martyr is simply the Greek word for witness. They were bearing witness to the reality of Christ, even to the point of death. So in preparing the disciples to get ready for persecution, the first thing he wants them to understand is that the reason for persecution is that God is giving us an opportunity to bear witness to our faith in Christ. But there's a second important point, which is that Jesus wants to prepare the disciples for persecution by helping them to understand why it is that they're being persecuted. He wants them to understand the reason for persecution. And he gets into this in verses 21 through 25. The reason for persecution is because of the disciples' identification with Christ. And this comes out in a very important phrase that's used in verse 22. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. That's a key phrase. The reason why you'll be hated, the reason why you're going to be persecuted is not because of you personally, but it's because of your identification with me, with Christ. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Uh, that's actually a very similar phrase to the one used earlier in verse 18, where it says, you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. The same idea there. And then again, in verses 24 through 25, Jesus says, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. So here he uses this analogy of the teacher and his students, the master and his disciples. And he is saying that the disciples will face persecution because they are like their master. He uses another analogy in verse 25, and this is the analogy of the house or the household and the head of the household. If they, call, if they have called the master of the house, meaning if they've called Jesus, Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household, that is, the members of his household, that is, his disciples, his people? Why are we being persecuted? It's because of our identification with Christ. That is what provokes the hatred. They don't hate us personally. They don't hate us per se. They hate Christ. They hate us because we proclaim the gospel of Christ, because we represent Christ. We see this in our text as well in another way, which is in the broader context of the gospel of Matthew. You see that what Jesus is sending the disciples out to do is exactly what Jesus himself did. So what, is the, what are the disciples being sent out to do? Well, in verse 7, they're being told to proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then as the sign of that, as the outward sign of the presence of the kingdom, they are to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, and so on. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing. That's recorded for us back in Matthew 9, verse 35 which is a summary statement that looks back on Matthew 8 and 9, which records 10 of Jesus' miracles. 
It says that Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So there's two things. He's preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and then he is adding to that the miracles, the healing miracles of Jesus as the sign of the gospel of the kingdom. So you see this interesting uh, parallel, right, between the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of the apostles. The apostles are doing exactly what Jesus did, with the difference, of course, that they are not divine, they are not God. So in performing the miracles, they're doing so under the authority of Christ, not in their own authority and in their own power. But they are simply replicating the ministry of Jesus. Jesus is sending out the apostles to be like his megaphone, right? He's been preaching the gospel of the kingdom and performing these miracles as the sign of the reality of the kingdom, forgiving people, healing the sick, and so on. And now he's using the apostles to amplify that message. So now it's not just one person, Jesus, but 12, 12 replicas of Jesus going out to all the nation of Israel, doing exactly what Jesus did. And so they are going to receive opposition just like Jesus himself received opposition. And the opposition is because of the gospel that they proclaim. The gospel that the apostles proclaim is the same gospel that Jesus proclaimed. By the way, that's kind of an interesting thought, isn't it? We don't often think of that. Did you know that Jesus preached the gospel? It's a little bit unusual to think of that, but that is the case. The Bible clearly teaches that, that Jesus preached the gospel. It's the same gospel that the apostles preached later on after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. Now, it's slightly different because when Jesus was going around Israel and proclaiming the gospel, he was doing so in anticipation of his death and resurrection. And so it hadn't yet been fulfilled, but he is still preaching the gospel. You can see this, for example, in Matthew chapter 9, when Jesus healed the paralytic in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 2. What did Jesus say to the paralytic? Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Just like we have in, in, in worship, right? We have uh, confession of sin, and then we receive the assurance of pardon. Jesus here is giving the assurance of pardon to this poor man, the sinner, but who is nevertheless coming to him in faith to be healed. And he assured him that his sins were forgiven. He was preaching the gospel. And the miracles were simply the outward sign of the reality. Just like in this text here in Matthew 9, uh, the Pharisees, they saw what Jesus said. And they said, this man is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God only? And so Jesus, knowing their thoughts, he said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And so the outward healing was the sign of the reality of the forgiveness of sins. Jesus preached the gospel. And this is what the apostles are doing as well. They're continuing. They're the megaphone of Jesus, preaching the same gospel that he preached. Look at Matthew 10, verse 8. Do all these things. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying. Give without paying. Or as the NASB says, freely you have received, freely give. 
that word freely that's used there in the text in Matthew 10, verse 8, is the exact same word that the Apostle Paul uses in Romans chapter 3, when he says that we are justified freely as a gift, Romans 3, 24. Freely you have received the grace of the gospel. Freely you have received forgiveness of sins in the power and the name of Jesus Christ. So freely give. Be the megaphone to proclaim the same gospel that Jesus preached to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That is what causes the offense. That is what is causing the world to react. That is what causes the allergic reaction to the disciples. It is because of their identification with Christ and his gospel. The gospel is offensive to the world because it means that there is none righteous. The gospel is offensive to the world because it means you cannot be righteous in yourself no matter how hard you try to be righteous. Righteousness only comes as a gift. Freely you have received, freely give. Righteousness comes as a gift of grace through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. You know, the world is one giant righteousness machine. And different people have different versions of their own righteousness machine. Some people say, I'm going to focus on social justice. and That'll prove what a good person I am, how righteous I am. Other people pursue righteousness in some other way. Maybe it's their religion. Whatever it is, the world is one big righteousness machine, maybe with different compartments for different flavors of that and different ways that it gets manifested. But that is what the world is hungering for and seeking after is to prove their own righteousness. The gospel comes and annihilates all that. The gospel comes like a grenade and destroys the righteousness machines and says there is no righteousness apart from Christ. Christ annihilates that and says, Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I didn't come to call people who think that they're righteous based on their own righteousness machine and whatever they're doing to feed that machine the fuel of their own good works in whatever arena of life it may be. I came to call the righteous, not the righteous, but sinners, those who know that they're sinners, those who know their need, those who, like this paralyzed man, knew that he was helpless apart from Christ and came to Christ to receive forgiveness and healing. That is what causes the offense. It's our identification with Christ that provokes the hatred of the world. And then finally, the third thing that Jesus wants to encourage the disciples with is that they can be confident in God's spiritual protection during persecution. Verse 26, so have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, for you are of more value than many sparrows. We may be persecuted because of our identification with Christ and his gospel. That's the downside. But the upside is that we belong to Christ, body and soul, in life and in death, and he will cover us with his spiritual protection. And so we don't need to be afraid, at least not in the ultimate sense. 
This is a powerful passage, isn't it, for showing that we are not simply bodies, but we are body and soul, and that the soul can survive the death of the body. And it's such an encouraging reality that we know that even if our bodies are attacked, even if they kill our bodies, they cannot harm our souls. We are spiritually safe in the arms of Christ. Jesus here is revealing the fatherhood of God and his providential care for his servants. If he cares even for the sparrows, who are the cheapest creature that you can buy in the market, seemingly a dime a dozen, right? If he even cares for the sparrows, how much more does he care for you, his servants? And so he says, don't be afraid. This word in verse 31, fear not. It comes from the lips of Jesus in the form of a command, but in its practical effect, it's not really a command, is it? It's really a word of comfort and encouragement. Jesus wants to give the disciples strength to endure, to continue to confess Christ in spite of the opposition and hostility of the world. And he's encouraging them, if we trust in him, he will carry us safely through death. And if we persevere in our faith, we persevere in professing our faith in Christ against all odds and against all the hostility of the world, that becomes evidence that our faith is real and that Christ himself is real to us, that we have set our, high, our hopes, our eyes upon something greater than this life, that we're looking forward to something greater than simply having ease and prosperity in this life, just like the martyrs in the early church that we have a heavenly hope, we have a resurrection hope that goes beyond this passing evil age. And that becomes a sign to the world around us that Christ is real, that his resurrection power is real, and that we are his disciples. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you taught your disciples and you warned them to expect opposition and hostility from the world. And you told us not to be surprised but to remember that if that is how they treated you, how much more will they malign those of your household? Take away our fear, O Lord. May we rest in the confidence that we belong to you. We have thrown in our lot with you, O Christ. We rest on you, our shield and our defender. We have no other hope but you. And so grant us the strength to endure in our confession of you before men in spite of all opposition. This we pray, amen. Let us now turn to number 475, who trusts in God a strong abode. Please rise.
receive now the blessing of our God. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Amen.